Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. My guest today at my kitchen table in Dublin is a man who is over from the United States on a short visit. One of many short visits he takes to a country that he has come to love in recent decades, despite having no prior connection to it. That's Cal Thomas, who has become a regular contributor to The Last Word on Today FM for what I reckon now must be about 15 years. He is a very much unashamed conservative. He has particularly strong views on social issues which may not necessarily rhyme with modern Ireland and many of his contributions to The Last Word get a pretty spirited negative response shall we say but he also has an enormous number of fans as I've discovered on going around the country countless times I've been asked all about Cal and Marion McKeown who is his colleague an Irish woman living in the United States who joins us every Tuesday for our chat about what's going on in the United States. So, when he was in Dublin, I decided to take the opportunity to bring him to my home and do a different style of interview with him to my normal ones, one that would give you the opportunity to learn an awful lot more about where Cal Thomas comes from intellectually. I hope you enjoy it. Cal Thomas, you're a subject of fascination to listeners on The Last Word of Today FM. Whenever I go around the country, people come up to me and they want to talk about Cal Thomas and Marion McKeown. And what are they really like? So we're going to find out today, aren't we, what you're really like. I hope you'll help me, Matt. I've been looking for years. <laughs> well, you know what? I think they ask me that, though, because I wonder at times, do they think, do you really mean everything that you say on the last word? Or are you perhaps having a few things up for effect? No, I mean, look, radio is part of entertainment and you have to make your ideas uh, interesting and entertaining to the public. So I try to uh, mix in with my political positions and my uh, history as a journalist, a little humor, uh, because as uh, Mary Poppins said in a completely different context, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You're a conservative, though, aren't you? What does that mean to you, to be a conservative? I think it means that you look at the past and what worked economically, uh, politically, uh, foreign policy, and you update it as necessary for modern times. But we didn't just crawl out of a cave. We're not the first generation ever to walk the earth. Human nature doesn't change. Clothing styles change. Modes of transportation change. Uh, political leadership changes. But human nature basically stays the same. And so if you understand that, then I think that you can uh, look to history and see what policies worked in the past and, to borrow a phrase from one of our founding documents, promoted the general welfare. Not everybody's welfare because there are competing interests, but promoting the general welfare. And so I want to conserve those things that worked, and if we can discover new things in our time to address new challenges based at least part on 
the knowledge of the past, uh, then I want to uh, update those things uh, for uh, contemporary issues. But you're not against the idea of change because there's a lot of people would argue that an awful lot of things from the past mm. were really bad, weren't good for people. Well, sure, an awful lot of things were good too. Uh, certainly in the United States, slavery was bad, racism is bad, uh, the lack of civil rights and equality for women was bad. But as Martin Luther King Jr., uh, eloquently and beautifully said, he appealed to a standard, not only in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And he appealed to scripture and these and the Puritan ethic that has been a part of America's DNA from the beginning, concepts of right and wrong that never change. Uh, and I think those kinds of standards uh, work in virtually every category of life if we properly uh, apply them. Uh, when I hear the word change, I want to know from what to what and why and what about the past was wrong and can we fix those things, but what about the past was right and can we apply those things? Is there a bit of the Puritan in you? <laughs> well, there is a leftover Puritan ethic, I think, in uh, in many Americans. Uh, uh, certainly not the you know the fundamentalist part and the denial of equality of rights for women and other things. But uh, the Puritans contributed a lot to the philosophical foundation of the United States. And you look at uh, people who came from England uh, to America in the early days, and they brought with them, uh, for example, uh, William Blackstone and his uh, notion of the of the law. Uh, coming from initially God and not Harvard University. And you, and you see that these uh, men, mostly, and women too later, uh, applied a standard that has worked for all time. I would say this is not a mystery. Get married before you have children. Stay married. Work out your problems. Be a good father or mother. Uh, if you're in school, stay in school. Get a good education. Live within your means. Don't buy things you can't afford. Don't go into great debt, which, by the way, could apply well to our government, which is now $30 trillion in debt because it refuses to say no to anyone uh, because the politicians just want to get reelected. So do you think does any political party at present actually enact the conservatism that you would like to see? I think uh, mostly uh, the Republicans give good lip service to it, and in some categories uh, they do. I wish they were more active when it comes to cutting the debt. Uh, they can't even cut the rate of increase in spending very often because the media and their opponents uh, drag out these uh, notions that they don't care about the poor and they don't care about children. When Paul Ryan uh, was Speaker of the House of Representatives for a while, he came up with a serious plan to reform Social Security and Medicare, the major drivers of American debt. Now, it had some flaws, but it was a serious plan. And the Democrats created a TV ad which uh, showed a Paul Ryan lookalike actor pushing an old lady in a wheelchair over a cliff. Now, that was funny, but it wasn't a serious response to a serious proposal. So a lot of Republicans run scared because of this instead of being bold about what they are supposed to believe in. How does your religious faith influence your political belief? Well, the scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we start there with the fact that every human being who has ever lived is flawed. And uh, our greatest need... Uh, as Scripture tells us, is, is salvation. Jesus of Nazareth came not to establish a religion, 
which some refer to as Christianity, but to reestablish a broken relationship that began when Adam and Eve decided to uh, go their own way and listen to their great adversary, described by various names in Scripture as the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, uh, our great enemy. So I start with that, and when you understand why human beings cannot perfect themselves on their own, and certainly not through government or government structures, it gives you a, uh, a different perspective on issues and what uh, can work towards solving them. Uh, most of our problems in America, and indeed around the world, are not the cause of our decadence. They're a reflection of it. Abraham Lincoln said the major cause of the Civil War was that we had forgotten God. Uh, Moses talked about the dangers of forgetting God and his will. Paul, Jesus, the writers, uh, the rest of the writers of the New Testament warned what happens to a nation and to individuals who forget God. And as the West becomes increasingly secular, I think we see the uh, outworking of that lack of faith in many quarters. Now, there's certainly a remnant, and uh, but my own faith uh, helps me not to put my trust in princes and kings, as David said in the Psalms. You quote scripture readily and easily. Did you learn all of this at Sunday school as a child? No, actually, I let it, uh, read it and uh, learned it as an adult. Uh, I was on a career path to become a big star at NBC News in Washington. I wanted to be a famous broadcast journalist, make a lot of money, buy stuff, the great American dream, as we say. And the more I achieved uh, toward that goal, uh, the less satisfied I was. I realized something serious was missing. I got introduced to some people who uh, are associated with our national prayer breakfast, to which every president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, it's non-political, has come since 1953 and Dwight Eisenhower. And and uh, they invited me later to uh, a Bible study. I'd never studied the Bible. My grandfather offered me a silver dollar if I memorized the 23rd Psalm, and that was the last serious Bible study that I did. And I, as I began to read it, I began to understand that there was something seriously missing in my life that a, a career success and making money and buying stuff could never satisfy. And when I was fired by NBC in 1973, I had to make a choice uh, because my career had become the center of my life. It was my God, small g. And out of that came a commitment not to religion, but to a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, everything that has happened to me since then, I have uh, attempted to use to uh, glorify God and not myself. Does that mean you're what they might call born again? Well, it's not what I call. It's what Jesus said in the third chapter of John when he was confronted by one of the great religious uh, Jewish teachers of the day named Nicodemus. Uh, and Jesus said, uh, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel's law, and you, you, don't, you don't know what it means to be born again. He's, Nicodemus said, well, how can I re-enter my mother's womb? And he said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit. And when you are born again, it means that you have uh, confessed to God that you are a sinner and that you are, have received his sacrifice on your behalf, uh, which was uh, Jesus of Nazareth dying on a cross and proving, unlike any so-called religious leader who has ever lived, that he was who he said because he's the only one who has ever been raised from the dead and was seen by over 500 people. Are you a member of a religious congregation? Uh, well, I attend a building called church on Sunday mornings, but I but what type of church is yeah, well, it? What I, type yeah. of is it? Evangelical Protestantism? Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, I would, I would accept that as a label. But I don't usually like labels because people who apply them don't really understand them. I had a uh, when I was working for CNN, a 
uh, producer there asked me, uh, what are you? I said, tall. She said, no, no, where do you go to church? I said, I am the church. She said, look, wise guy, what do you do on Sunday morning? I said, well, depending on how I feel, I get a cup of coffee, read the newspaper. Uh, look, when you leave the house, she said, where do you go? I gave her an address. She said, is there a building there? I said, yes. She said, what's the name of the building? I said, what are you getting at? She said, I want to know what you believe. I said, now we can have a conversation. But people have built this structure around the person of Jesus of Nazareth that has really little to do with him. Someone asked me, what's your denominational background? I said, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, and hundreds. I'm not going to allow you to <laughs> define me by a label you can't define. <laughs> okay, but did this inform your childhood? Was this something that your parents would have brought you up? But tell me, you were born nearly 80 years ago, so you would have been a child born in the middle of the Second World War. Yes, the end of 1942. In December. Uh, no, my parents took me to a building called church on Sunday for an hour, maybe two if I went to a Sunday school class. But there was really no uh, personal relationship with God that came out of that. Uh, we never read the Bible in the home. We not didn't even, to my recollection, say grace before dinner. And uh, it wasn't that they were anti-God. It was like a lot of people. That's what you did. You just went to church on Sunday. You listened to a sermon. And the rest of the day and the rest of the week was pretty much whatever you wanted to do. Uh, but as I said, when I got on this career track, uh, I had a goal of becoming a network correspondent by the time I was 30. The more I got, the less satisfied I was. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But tell me a little bit more about your parents. What did they do? And what about all your siblings? My father was uh, the oldest of nine children. He was born in 1908 in a little town uh, called Washington, Indiana. And uh, he had four brothers and three sisters. One of the sisters is still alive. And um, he moved to Washington, D.C. at the age of 19. He eventually became a very successful salesman of what we called back then before the computer age, uh, calculating machines. And then in the last 10 years of his professional life, he was the uh, uh, government representative for Sony uh, in Washington. So his background was uh, sales primarily. My mother was a traditional homemaker. She worked for a while as a single woman at a department store in Washington. But uh, there was nobody with a media background in my family. And um, I started in radio when I was 16 after a local disc jockey came to our teen club and said, I'm having a little class for people who are interested in talking on the radio. I said, well, that sounds interesting. So I went to the class and uh, he said, well, you've got a pretty good voice. Why don't you uh, come out to the station and, uh, and do the little uh, thing that they did at the time with reports from the local high school? And the general manager uh, heard me and said, hey, uh, kid, I was 16 years old. How would you like to have your own show? And that's how I started in radio as a disc jockey. My wife was working at the same station. We were both in high school together. She was squiring around celebrities on the outside, and I was on the air. So 50 years later, we caught up with each other and, and got married. Which is a lovely story, and I'll get to that again in a little while. So you started as a DJ. What made you want to get into journalism? Was it to report on stories or was it simply to be on air? Well, it was really interesting. Uh, my father only knew one person in, uh, in broadcasting and he happened to be a member of our local uh, country club, our golf club. And he introduced me to him and uh, he was an announcer at the NBC station in Washington. And knowing of my interest, uh, general interest in the media, he took me down to the newsroom at NBC in Washington and introduced me to some people. And I applied for a copy boy job. Uh, that was an old term left over from newspapers where editors would handle usually a young man or young girl uh, copy and they would take it to uh, the linotype operator and that would 
create the newspapers. And so I went to, and they said, well, we don't have anything open right now, but leave your application. And three weeks later, the head copy boy quit and they called me and offered me the job. And that's how I got in the door. And I tell young people today, whatever it takes, if you're interested in this business or really any business, the most important thing is to get in the door, no matter what you do. After and you get and did you keep that job part-time when you went to college after your high school? Yeah, I was doing a, a full-time in both. Uh, I was working the afternoon shift, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Interestingly, uh, I, I'd often stay over after my shift at 11 because at 11.25 p.m., Jim Henson and the Muppets did a live show from the Washington local station. And that's how I first met Jim and Oscar the Grouch and Kermit the Frog and all of these other people. And, of course, he went on to become a huge celebrity. And if it wasn't for the fact that you're male, I'd say Big Bird was modeled on you, uh, well, given the yes. height of you. We were about the same height, I think, yeah. <laughs> he was a little more yellow than me, though. <laughs> okay, but then if you were born in 1942, that means that in the mid-1960s, were you of an age where you were expected to serve in Vietnam? Yes. As a matter of fact, my uh, draft number, we had the draft back then, uh, came up and the head of the local draft board, uh, who I had met a couple of times, and said I reminded her of her grandson. So she wanted to give me a head notice that uh, my number was going to come up and I was going to be drafted. And like a lot of other young people then... Uh, I didn't think uh, much of the war, except that I didn't want to go. And so the NBC uh, uh, Pentagon correspondent uh, was named Peter Hackus, and I asked him uh, if he could introduce me to somebody at the Pentagon. So if I was going into the Army, maybe I could get a media-related job. And he did, and that, that man helped me uh, – get a position with Armed Forces Radio in New York. I like to say I was fighting communists at Broadway and 57th Street. But you didn't never actually had to travel to Asia? No. Uh, I went through basic training like everybody else. And one of the unfortunate things was uh, that the overwhelming numbers in my company in basic training were African-American or from the hills of West Virginia. The college students, the seminary students, the uh, others who managed to avoid the draft uh, through a very, very unfair system uh, managed to escape. And years later, I went down to the wall in Washington where the 57, 56,000 people who died there have their names inscribed in marble. And I saw the name of the, the general who got me uh, the break with Armed Forces Radio in New York and my company commander, first lieutenant, um, because I wanted to, um, you know, honor them and, and what, thank What them. had happened to him? Well, the general was uh, killed in a helicopter accident. He, he took a flight that he didn't have to take in place of somebody else. His name was, was Keith Ware. And uh, it was very, very tragic. But I wrote a column about him some years later. I think it was a Memorial Day column for my newspaper syndicate. And I got a lot of really nice mail from people who knew him and said uh, he was an incredible man and a real gentleman. He certainly saved my life. I mean, I was six feet seven at the time. Can you imagine how long it would have taken for me to dig a foxhole? <laughs> Do you think was that war a just war for the United States to have fought in? No, but it was part of the uh, what they call the Red Scare. Uh, Lyndon Johnson used to say, I'm not going to be the first president in U.S. history to uh, lose the war. And uh, it was a nationalistic uh uh, thing with Ho Chi Minh, who, uh, you know, the French uh, warned uh, ag uh, us against getting involved in that. They, they made a terrible mistake. And there were similar mistakes in Afghanistan. You know, the Russians pulled out. We went in. We were stuck there for 20 years. Uh, 
we have this this mentality that we can fix things and that somehow by sending troops thousands of miles away that people are going to automatically embrace democracy. Not everybody can be like us. Not everybody wants to be like us. And I think we made a huge mistake in Vietnam and we didn't learn the lesson of the French. And uh, it was a very tragic thing and a lot of people who died who didn't have to. Yeah, a lot of people in this part of the world would give out about American interventions and recently in Iraq and Afghanistan or whatever. But at the same time, if you hadn't intervened in the Second World War, we would have suffered the tyranny of Nazism. True. And I, you know, hindsight, of course, is a cliche, but it's a great teacher. And uh, of course, we didn't want to get involved. And Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, uh, was holding out as long as he could until uh, Pearl Harbor, of course, because there was still an enormous isolationist uh, feeling in the United States uh, so soon after World War I that a lot of people didn't want another involvement in a European war. But of course, after uh, December 7th, it all changed virtually overnight. Take a step back. You mentioned country club membership. So does this mean you came from a sort of a privileged, secluded background? Uh, I wouldn't say it. Well, yes, compared to a lot of other people, I guess I was privileged. But I grew up in an all-white neighborhood. Uh, The only black people I knew were the maid, two maids, one after another that my parents employed. Uh, I didn't really get to know any African-American people until I started playing basketball and showered with them and played with them and uh, went to their homes for dinner. And I think that was a, um, uh, a flaw. I mean, you know, you couldn't help it. I mean, a neighborhood is a neighborhood. My father bought our first house for $20,000 on the GI Bill. Now you probably couldn't get it for a down payment of that in that neighborhood. But... Um, I, I, and, you know, what really began to change my thinking, I was present at Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in, in uh, 1963, and uh, it was profound. And I think that had a, uh, a strong, made a strong impression on my consciousness and the evils of, of, of racism and the leftover um, stain of slavery that in many ways uh, still characterizes some part of the American experience. You've explained how your sort of religious experience opened up when you were in your 30s, but what about your political thinking? Again, was that something influenced at home? A friend of mine, uh, when I was a kid, well, 14, well, 16, I guess, gave me a copy of Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. I hadn't really thought much about liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. I knew my parents voted Republican, and I did uh, do volunteer work for a Maryland congressman named Matthias uh, stuffing envelopes, uh, but I didn't think much of it. I didn't have really a political worldview until later. And uh, then I began to read not only history, but political history. I started listening to the positions of politicians on both sides and, and uh, sort of evolved to uh, my later position as a, a conservative, but hopefully one with a sense of humor, who can respect and understand people who have a different point of view. But if you were moved by Martin Luther King as a 21-year-old, as I think I calculate you must have been back then, yes. would that not have led you almost towards a more democratic way of thinking rather than Republican? Well, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, and he is the one who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. African-American people voted mostly Republican uh, in in uh, memory of that and an appreciation for that right up until the time of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, And uh, I think today, you know, I don't like to quote 
Donald Trump favorably, but during often, but during the 2016 campaign, he spoke to an African-American audience and he said, why do you continue to vote for the Democrats? What have they done for you? Your schools in the inner cities are a mess. And they are. Uh, the left, the Democrats are opposed to school choice because the teachers' unions uh, fund many of their campaigns. I call it uh, George Wallace in, the, in reverse. If you know your American political history, and I know you do, Wallace symbolically stood in a schoolhouse door in the state of Alabama to keep black people out. Now I argue that many leftist Democrats are standing in the schoolhouse door of inner city schools to keep young black children in. It's a disgrace, and it, it harms their future. If you can't get a good education, then you have two strikes against you starting out in life. Earlier you mentioned about a turning point in your life when you were fired by NBC, I think it was, the network. How did you happen to be in NBC and what happened that led to you being fired? Well, as I said, uh, I started as a copy boy uh, from 61 to 65. That would be 1961, not 1861. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, then, you know, I went to Houston where I worked for the NBC affiliate there covering the space program during the height of the Apollo mission and the moon landing. I knew many of the astronauts. And, uh, and then uh, this, this position opened up at NBC in Washington. And I grabbed it immediately and moved back there in December of 1969. Doing what? Uh, on the air reporting. I was anchoring on radio first, uh, local and uh, national, and later started getting on television. Uh, and, uh, you know, did the things you're supposed to do when you're becoming successful. You, know, you buy the nice car, you buy the nice house and, and the rest. Uh, but uh, when I got fired in 73, it was a combination of things. It was... Uh, Jealousy by a couple of colleagues because of the exposure I was getting on the network and they thought they should have gotten it. And my big mouth because I was a big complainer then and uh, voiced my opinions to a lot of people I should Complaining not. about what? Well, I don't know. You know, I can't remember back that far. But, it, you know, whatever about management or how I should have been able to do this. It was – it was pride. and uh, I know, say I, you didn't lack self-confidence to make yourself hurt either, did well, you? Well, there's a difference between self-confidence and pride. And uh, I think that self-confidence uh, comes from appreciating the gifts that God has given you and knowing what you're capable of. I'm not capable of much. I can write and I can speak, but don't ask me to change a light bulb. Okay, so then after you were fired, what happened to you? Well, that night, uh, we were having a small uh, group in our home, and um, I was told that you'll never be free of this burden to be a success until you thank God for losing your job. Now, my job had become my God, and uh, so that night, I, I committed my life to Christ, and my career went in reverse for 11 years. I had to go back to Houston, take a huge pay cut, sell the nice car in the house, but God was building into me certain things that... Uh, would be useful to me later for the plan that he had in my life. Up to then, I had my own plan, and I, if I ever paid attention to God, I was asking him to bless my plan for me. But uh, after that, I sought to uh, slowly, slowly uh, glorify him, and uh, wonderful things happened, including this syndicated newspaper column, which but, opened but up. But before we get to that, yeah. the, the 11 years, yeah. how difficult were those 11 it years? It was difficult. I went from having steak to Chef Boyardee for dinner. Uh, I was making $25,000 a year at the age of 37. I thought my career was over. I was incredibly frustrated. But there's a wonderful verse in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, if you prefer, 
Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And that is what has happened to me. It took me a while to learn it because I've got a hard head. I was just going to ask, how much scripture can you quote? Enough. What's enough? Well, enough to tell you what God says about himself, about your greatest need and my greatest need, um, which is uh, salvation. He promises a reason for living now beyond what you do for a living and a home in heaven later, and nobody else can offer that promise. Today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper is brought to you by NG Ireland. Okay, so what was the turning point then 11 years later? What happened? Well, I I was put in the company of uh, This Is How God Works with some people, first who taught me sound doctrine, uh, sound biblical doctrine, and later a uh, philosopher theologian named Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who was from uh, America but lived in Switzerland for years, and uh, took a lot of young people, students who were questioning and asking the big questions of life into a place called Labrie in uh, Chezier, Switzerland. I met him, and he helped transform the way I think about things. It's, it's just a, it's amazing. So I have this uh, standard by which I uh, measure ideas. Uh, it's like a, going to the supermarket, and you have a standard for measuring the weight of apples or vegetables that you're buying. It's, a, it's in, uh, you know, we scales or whatever. Scales, yes. And so I have a standard by which I judge things. And it's not my standard, uh, but it's a, it's a biblical standard. It's an economic standard. It's a standard about things that work. Rather than constantly looking for new ideas and new solutions, the book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Everything you think has been thought before. Everything you do has been done before. That's why I look to the past to learn from the past and why I love historians like David McCullough. We've talked about him earlier on another, on another occasion uh, because they make the past come alive and they make me realize that, uh, again, I'm not the first person who ever lived and I can learn from others. Okay, but you got that turning point as well. You got a new job as a syndicated newspaper yes. columnist. Up until this point, you had not been a writer. You had always been a broadcaster. Right. Well, I wrote for broadcast too. Back sure. then, uh, reporters would write their own material. Now you have producers and bookers and others who do it for a lot of people. But uh, for broadcast, it would tend to have been very succinct, I would imagine. Yes, that's right. Yes. You do a you do a five-minute newscast and you would uh, your stories would be 15, 20 seconds each with a commercial break. And uh, we'd had a major and minor commercial. I won't go through, into all of that. But yeah, but it was it was short. It was nothing like newspaper. Matter of fact, in 1983, uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the Nazi book burning in Berlin. And there was a lot of stuff in the media about censorship and those crazy right-wingers who were trying to take books out of libraries and and uh, use uh, you know Sharpie pens to cover up uh, half-naked natives in National Geographic magazine. I said, well, wait a minute. I'd published a book that year called Book Burning about censorship from the left. And uh, I said, you know, there's a lot more to say about this. So I sat down and wrote a column. I'd never written a column for a newspaper, ever. And I sent it off to the New York Times, thinking they would never print it. And they did, with a cartoon. 
And you didn't draw the cartoon. I did not draw the card. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. That's not one of my talents. And and they got a, a huge amount of uh, mail. And then I had another idea two weeks later, and I wrote a column for the Washington Post. Happened to be on about Ted Kennedy, who became a friend. Uh, and they published that. I wrote another one for the Los Angeles Times. They published that. I said, what's going on? This is ruining my talk on the biased media. So I called up an old friend that I had uh, known when he was a White House fellow. His name was Tom Johnson, who was then the publisher of the Los Angeles Times. And I said, Tom, I think there's a lack of good conservative commentary. And he said, well, you may be right. Uh, next time you're in Los Angeles, uh, let me know, and uh, I'll set up a meeting with our syndicate people. They're separate, but I'll get you in the door. So uh, I did, and uh, that morning, um, consistent with what we talked about earlier, um, I asked uh, God to do a greater miracle than Moses parting the Red Sea. I said, if you'll part the liberal mind, I'll seek to honor you with this gift. So I went to lunch with the vice president of the LA Times Syndicate and the chief copy editor, and they spent an hour telling me why they couldn't take on another columnist. And uh, near the end of that, the vice president of the syndicate turns to me and says, by the way, uh, I hear you're a Christian. Is that right? I said, oh, man, what do I do? You know, if I'm too forthcoming, they're going to say, this guy's religious. Put him on the religion page. We deal with real ideas here. But maybe remembering my prayer that morning, I just took a couple of minutes to tell them how Jesus had changed my life. And the vice president of the syndicate turned to the chief copy editor and said, "Uh, isn't so-and-so leaving us in April? And she said, yes, I'd forgotten about that. And he turns to me and said, can you do two columns a week for us starting April 17th? And that was nearly 39 years ago. It became the top syndicated column in America in over 500 newspapers, including some foreign newspapers. And uh, I believe it's because of the verse I have inscribed on the back of my watch, 1 Samuel 2.30, he who honors me, I will honor. You do it twice a week, every week. Do you have, have you ever missed periods? No. As a matter of fact, uh, some years ago, uh, I was in Northern Ireland, visiting with friends. And I said, eh, I think I'll just take a week off. I haven't you know, ever done that before. And at that time, the Princess of Wales, Diana, died. So I had to write about that and the, and the BBC coverage. And uh, so, no, I've never missed a deadline. I'm kind of proud of that. Okay. And what do you always write about? Well, mostly American politics, uh, but also, um, you know, while I've been over here, I've, I've written uh, about uh, the coverage of the Queen's death. I've just finished a column uh, from Dublin uh, based on uh, the, a, a survey by uh, the University of Cork on uh, the number of young people, 18 to 24, who are seriously considering leaving Ireland. And I, I found a quote from uh, John F. Kennedy who came here in June of 1963, who said that most countries export, you know, food and other things. Only in Ireland do they export people. And I found that there had been 10 million people who had left Ireland since 1800. So I wrote a a whole thing on the Irish economy. And one of the things I said was, the amazing thing here is that the economy seems to be doing quite well. But the prices, uh, inflation, uh, hotels, cars, food, everything, and in America too, seem to be going up so rapidly that they are um, canceling a lot of the prosperity that's going on. It's hard to get a taxi here now. Um, Stores that were open four years ago when I was here are now closed with graffiti on them. So 
uh, and there are a lot of homeless people. You don't see them on the street so much here, but people, especially younger people who don't have a place to live and can't afford. So, uh, you know, I try to write about things that will interest people in the United States. How did you develop the interest in Ireland, given that you have no family background here? Well, my uh, my late wife uh, was part of a uh, uh, a chamber choir that toured uh, England and uh, 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 Scotland and and uh, Northern Ireland, and um, the churches that hosted them um, put people up in the, in their homes, church members' homes. So uh, this particular couple that uh, put her up, uh, she called me one day and said, "You got to come over and meet these people." He was uh, he and his brother headed uh, Duke Transport, uh, one of the largest uh, lorry companies in the UK at the time, and they became instant friends. And they had a uh, they had a holiday home in Port Stewart on the Antrim coast, and uh, so we bought a flat there. And uh, I just fell in love with the place, the music, the people, um, uh, the food, <laughs> the Guinness. Uh, so many things to love about Ireland. It's hard to explain why you how you fall in love with a person or a land, but. Uh, even though I have no heritage here, I, I feel it's my second home. And if I were 20 years younger, I'd buy another place and move here almost permanently. But you have sold your home up there, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why was that? Well, my wife died and, uh, you know, life goes on. And so I'm very happily and wonderfully married to uh, my wife, CJ, and uh, we are we have property in uh, Miami together. She owns a fabulous restaurant in Key Largo, not uh, about an hour south of Miami. In the Florida Keys, and um, you know we're getting a uh, we're getting a second chance. You know the old Frank Sinatra song, "Love is lovelier the second time around." Just as wonderful with both feet on the ground. <laughs> you had a lovely house in Arlington, isn't it? Uh, Arlington, which, Virginia. Yes, just outside Washington. I, I visited you there yes, in you 2017, did. and yes. it's a beautiful, beautiful house. Was it hard to leave Washington, being the sort of the epicenter of everything, or was that sort of almost like a feeling that you were moving towards retirement by moving to Florida? <laughs> yeah. Well, there are no state taxes there, so I got an immediate pay raise. Uh, no, I mean, it was initially kind of hard because you're right. I mean, I, I was born in Washington. I've spent most of my professional life there, except for two tours in Houston and one in New York. But um, uh, but I'm getting used to it. And a lot, a lot of friends have moved away as well to other places. So, And there are certain uh, compensations. I'm pointing to my wife sitting to my left here. How are you coping with getting older? I don't think about it. I mean, I mentally, I feel just as aware. I mean, there are you know, certain parts of the body that uh, are breaking down. I like to say the mind is the second thing to go, but I forget what the first was. Uh, <laughs> Clearly, so. though, the mind is razor sharp. I mean, you have no difficulty in reaching for words, as all your quotations from the Bible would mm. clearly show. People age in different ways. I mean, if you look... Uh, not to be judgmental about it, but if you look at uh, like President Biden, clearly we are the same age. He's one month uh, uh, older than I am. He was born in November of 42. I was born in December of 42. And he has clearly, I think, to be fair, some cognitive issues. Other people live well into their 80s and 90s and even 100, uh, depending on uh, their genes and other factors and how they treat themselves. So, um, you know, I'm, I feel pretty good and uh, just some you know, minor physical problems, but uh, mentally I think I'm still alert. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to ask you, I mean, is it ages to suggest that both Joe Biden and Donald Trump 
are too old to be presidents of the United States because, you know, other societies and countries would regard that age as conveying great wisdom. Yes. Well, you think of Conrad Adenauer in Germany, who was, I think, uh, in his 80s when he became uh, chancellor of Germany. I think I prefer, and most people I think would prefer, uh, younger leadership uh, because you're younger, you're more energetic, you're more generally tuned in. And I think we had that with uh, Bill Clinton and we had that with uh, George W. Bush and we had that with Barack Obama. And I think that's kind of a good thing. You know, when John Kennedy uh, uh, became president in 1961, uh, he said in his inaugural address, the torch has been passed to a new generation, the old generation being Dwight Eisenhower. Now, you don't dishonor their accomplishments, but you move on to a new generation. And I think, uh, you know, we've got a lot of good, young, younger political leadership in the United States. Do you? Because this is the thing that I wonder about, that both of your main political parties are struggling to find somebody to come forward to be very impressive Mm -hmm. that maybe it's because public service is no longer as big an issue as it used to be in society that people see more money to be made in Wall Street or in industry or whatever but would you sometimes older people complain about the younger generations (laughs) not being what we were (laughs) but is there not a serious deficit in talent coming through at the moment There's not a deficit in talent. There is a reluctance of people to get into public service, and it's not just because of the money. If you've ever done anything in your life that you're embarrassed about, and who hasn't, particularly if you were a young person, it's going to come out. Now, my view is that if I were to ever run for office, and I wouldn't because my wife would shoot me, I would put out a press release on every known sin or discretion I had ever committed because for the media, the uh, power is in discovering something you're trying to hide. But, you know, the, the, the media could turn could have turned Mother Teresa into something that she wasn't. Uh, you even see, uh, you know, criticism of the queen by anti-monarchists, even during the time of mourning following her death. Uh, so there are a lot of people who don't want to get involved in politics because it, it's so dirty. And the social media and the cable networks will multiply any indiscretion or anything that they think you have done wrong and make you look like a terrible individual. So people who are happily married and have good families say, why bother? Do you feel any way responsible for that, though, given that you did work for many years for Fox News? I'm pretty proud of my time at Fox News because nobody ever told me what to say or not to say. They never told me what guests I could have on and what guests I couldn't. I was pretty proud of the fact that uh, I think I was the first one to open the door to Democrats at Fox News because they wouldn't come on the network because it was perceived as being too far right and they wouldn't get a fair shake. So I wrote a note to my longtime friend, Steny Hoyer, who was a congressman from Maryland and a leader in the Democrat Party. I said, Steny, you know me. Please ask some of your colleagues in Congress to come on the show with me. I'll treat them fairly. They can finish their sentences. They can make their point. They won't get a free ride. I will challenge them, but... They'll, they'll be treated with respect. And he did, and they started coming on, and they're still coming on. I felt pretty good about that, and I, I'm pretty proud of the show that I had for two years and the media critique show that I was part of for 10 years. But it was only two years. Did Roger Ailes not appreciate what you were doing? What sort of relationship did you have with a man who became famous afterwards because of the way he was portrayed by Russell Crowe in the lengthy TV series The Loudest Voice in the Room? Roger gave me my uh, first show of my own when he was head of CNBC, and then he gave me a show of my own on Fox. I didn't know about any of this, and I only went up uh, to New York 
on Thursday and Friday every week and came back late Friday after taping the two shows, the media uh, show and my, my own show. And I, I heard rumors about some other people, but I never heard anything uh, about him. So it was kind I just of— I sort of sexual harassment, yes, which was afterwards yes, terrified. Yes, I heard about it, that it was going on with certain other people who were pretty well-known at Fox. Uh, but I, uh, I didn't know anything about Roger at all. And uh, he was very good to me. Um, we're all flawed, some more flawed than others. But uh, I, I, I liked him as a friend. I thought he and Rupert Murdoch uh, found a need in the media— and met it, and that's why Fox became so hugely successful and made a ton of money for a yeah, lot of yeah, people. Yeah, but you say about finding a need in the media, I mean, it gave a partisan approach to coverage, you know, which you could say balanced what you regarded as a partisan approach on other stations, but surely all that partisanship is bad for American democracy and the reporting that's done now only instead of actually trying to get to the truth of situations, only tries to reinforce existing prejudices. Well, I don't think, uh, you know, I hate to quote Mao Zedong, but I think he said, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. I don't think in a uh, constitutional republic like ours, having more voices available, uh, thankfully for the uh, you know, dissolution under Ronald Reagan of the, um, uh, the, the Fairness Act, uh, which basically limited free speech because a lot of people didn't feel that uh, they could get their ideas out there in a, in a fair way. I think satellites, I think uh, uh, talk radio and all of these other things are good if they don't become your only source of information. Now, I did meet somebody while I was in uh, Wexford, a, a woman who said that uh, she had never listened to the other side. She had one point of view. I won't tell you what uh, network she listened to in Ireland all the time, but she never listened to anything else. And she said, so I'm here to hear another point of view today. I said, well, I'm very glad for that because in a free society, you should be open to other points of view. In totalitarian societies, you get only one point of view. And it's like uh, just eating one thing on your plate at dinner time. You need to have a balanced diet in order to be healthy. You need to have a balanced political and intellectual diet in order to properly function in a uh, democratic society. But if the 20th century was the American century, is the 21st century not going to be? And is it not the century in which your beloved country has gone into decline? There is a cycle to history, and uh, nations uh, come and go. In my latest book, America's Expiration Date, uh, The Fall of Empire, Superpowers, and the Future of the United States, I look at an essay by the late British diplomat Sir John Glubb, who studied 4,000 years of human history and found that there was a pattern to the decline of great nations. It begins with massive national debt. We have over a $30 trillion debt in America. No nation has ever been able to survive on that kind of debt. Our interest on the debt is greater than the GDP of many nations. The second factor that contributes to the collapse of nations is uncontrolled immigration without assimilation. If you look at our southern border, thousands of people are pouring over, not tested for COVID, some of them bringing fentanyl drugs that is killing thousands of young people, all of it coming from China through Mexican cartels. And the third thing that contributes and has contributed in the past to the collapse of great nations is a loss of a shared moral sense. And I would say that not only in America, but in much of the West, the whole concepts of right and wrong, of good and evil, 
have been uh, watered down to the level where everybody is supposed to be appeased and accepted regardless of their points of view, lifestyle, or behavior. And that is a major contributing factor to the decline of nations as well. You mentioned those people coming over the, the border from Mexico. Immigration is a major part of American life. It's the melting pot. Mm. We have many illegal Irish immigrants in the United States who I know from having interviewed them in places like Yonkers in upstate New York, whatever, are terrified about coming home to Ireland for fear they won't get back into the United States to their new homes again. Does not something need to be done to regularise the situation of all of the immigrants who have come in who do contribute to the economy of the United States, to do the jobs that otherwise would not be done. We have immigration laws that were passed by Democrat and Republican members of Congress. They were signed by Republican and Democrat presidents of the United States. I want to ask, if those laws no longer matter, then let us put the repeal before the Congress and get rid of them. We can't have uncontrolled immigration. Uh, we have checkpoints where people with legitimate concerns uh, for persecution in their home countries can uh, apply for asylum. And they are in several places along the U.S.-Mexico border. If people are legitimate in their claims, they should come through there. Their first act in the United States should not be breaking the law. And then we have uh, human traffickers. We have sexual predators. We have drug cartels that are manipulating the system. And uh, I, I fear for the future in this. I really do. I, I, I think law-breaking is a terrible thing. And we have people breaking the law everywhere. You have plenty of Americans who break the law even before you get the immigrants exactly. in. But what about the Irish? Would you have any sympathy for the Irish who didn't go because their lives were in danger in the 1980s and 1990s, but who went for the sort of economic reasons of that time that you're reciting in your new column about the current young generation? Yeah. Well, I, I think there is a way to fix this. I think if someone, as you mentioned, especially the Irish people, have been here uh, for a considerable period of time, have gotten jobs, they've contributed to society, they're not committed. Uh, committing crimes, uh, uh, then uh, we can give them a pass, path to citizenship. And many have uh, received that path. Uh, certainly during the Obama administration, there was something called uh, DACA. The, I can't remember. For the, the Dreamers. Yeah, the called. Dreamers and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not necessarily 100% behind that. But yes, we want people to come to America, but we want them to come legally. And we want them to come in ways that uh, uh, they will uh, be respected for not breaking our laws. And there are ways to do that. They don't have to pour over the border illegally. But again, the cartels are doing this. They're paying uh, thousands of dollars in many instances to these drug cartels to smuggle them into the United States. And that's a terrible way to begin life and a very bad message to send to uh, newly arrived people in this country. Later this year, we plan to do a special culture club with you on The Last Word in Today FM because apart from the politics and religion, you have a tremendous love of music, don't you? Yes, I do. I do. And uh, I love almost all forms of music, including some country songs. My favorite being You're the Reason Our Kids Are Ugly. Uh, <coughs> or Tears on My Back. Uh, from, uh, Tears in My Ears from Lying on My Back, Crying Over You. Those are great, great American country songs. Were you not a Garth Brooks over the last few days here uh, in Ireland? I, I'm not as huge a Garth Brooks fan as uh, Irish people are. but I Is just, that because he sang at Joe Biden's inauguration? No, 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 no. I don't care about that. I, you know, there's some kinds of country music I like better than others. But I've, I've been a fan of the Broadway musical form uh, for many, many years, as we talk about on Culture Club. I love Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, the old guys who sang the great American songbook. 
uh, songs written by uh, uh, you know, George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin, the Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. Wonderful songs, words that you can hear and understand, love songs. And as a matter of fact, when I was courting uh, my wife, CJ, I would send her a uh, love song every morning. And uh, how could she resist? And thankfully, she didn't. She took sympathy upon me. Well, I'm going to ask this as we come to the conclusion of this interview, almost very deliberately given the religious views that you have expressed. Are you thankful for your life? I am. I have uh, been incredibly blessed, even during the difficult times. Because you have suffered loss in your life oh, of yes. Ray, your wife, yeah. and also your youngest My daughter. My daughter died of a brain tumor, yes. But the, the question is not how many, time, how many years we're going to spend on this earth. Uh, the question is where we're going to spend eternity, which is a much longer time. And where do you believe? Because one previous guest that I've had on the Magnified series, Terry Prone, who had been married to a former priest, and Tom, her husband, died mm-hmm. about six years ago. And she was very emotional in that she says she accepts that he's gone and that she's never going to see him again. And that is very, very hard for her, but that her belief is that that is it. So do you believe that the people that you've loved, that you will be with all of them in some form of afterlife? Well, more important than that, I'm going to be with the one who died for me. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place. A place is specific. Dublin is specific. The last word, studio, is specific. Heaven is specific. It exists outside of space and time. God lives outside of time, but he has offered a place for eternity in perfection where we will see him as he is. And that is the great hope and promise not only of me, but of millions of other followers of Jesus. And do you believe that you have lived a life that guarantees you admission to heaven? No, that's not what I'm basing it on. I am living a life... uh, that guarantees me for a place of heaven, not because of anything I've done, because Paul the Apostle said, no one is righteous, no, not one, but because of what Jesus did on the cross in my behalf. That's my entry into heaven. Are you forgiving of others who do not share your values? Sure, because uh, one of the best ways to share the love of God with other people is to reflect it in your own life. My concern is that too many Americans seem to be putting more faith in Donald Trump than they are of the God of heaven. And I think that corrupts the faith. I think it uh, communicates to people that if I'm going to be a believer, I have to be a Republican. I have to be a right winger. I have many friends who are uh, on the liberal side politically, who are followers of Jesus of Nazareth and who are going to the same destination that I'm going to. And I certainly don't judge them uh, based on their politics. Do you ever have any fear or any concern that you might be wrong, that it might not be there for you? No. Because as the hymn says, uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the dearest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground, including Republican, Democrat, liberal, and conservative, I added that, uh, is sinking sand. To finish, Cal Thomas, how much longer can we enjoy your company, do you think, on The Last Word? How much longer will you continue writing your columns, remain active and busy? Well, that's... 
The first part depends on you and uh, the people who decide who's going to be on the air. I've enjoyed enormously being on this station. I hear from people on Facebook and others who, who listen and uh, who appreciate it. And of course, they don't always agree, but that's fine. Uh, but they're listening and they have another point of view. Uh, in terms of writing, as long as my uh, health holds out and uh, I don't certainly lack for, uh, for subject matter, um, I'd love to continue it for another five years or so maybe and uh, – then uh, maybe travel around the world on a private jet. <laughs> Carl Thomas, as ever, great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us for this magnified episode. And I look forward to many more years of talking to you on The Last Word. Thank of you, Matt. And you know, you're my favorite presenter. Ah, you're always very good like that. <laughs> And so that was Cal Thomas joining us here on Magnified with Matt Cooper. I hope very much you enjoyed it. If you did, well then, please recommend this podcast to a friend. Send it on to them and let them know that they will have, hopefully, an entertaining hour or so in listening to this or one of the many other podcasts that we have had as part of this series. And of course, you can hear Cal Thomas alongside Marion McKeown on The Last Word in Today FM every Tuesday, usually at around 20 to 6. But that's it for Magnified. Until the next time, thank you for joining me. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Come on.